This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Ontario election, which is coming up on June the 7th, because uh, it's going to be a big one. Uh, there's a new leader for the Progressive Conservative Party and, of course, uh, a leader who is trailing drastically in the polls, the sitting premier, and uh, Andrea Horvath, of course, the NDP leader, uh, who is uh, heading into her third election as leader of the uh, Ontario NDP. But there has been speculation going around town. I've heard it, certainly, from many circles over the last, I guess, four or five weeks, really, that uh, Andrea Horvath, if she doesn't become premier uh, in this election on June the 7th, may end up running for mayor for the city of Hamilton. Because let's not forget that there is a municipal election also in the fall of this year. And uh, those that do not do as well as they wanted or are not even involved in the provincial election may well end up as candidates for the top job here in the city of Hamilton. What are the implications? What are the chances of something like that uh, if uh, things do not go well? Will Andrew Horvath take a run at the top job here in the city of Hamilton? Larry DeAnne's held that job. Uh, he's a former mayor, of course. He's a lobbyist now at, here in the city of Hamilton. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his perspective. Hey, Larry, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Bill. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at this dynamic, and we're I'm kind of playing what if here, and I understand that. But we always have, seem to have the discussion about people that are at municipal government moving up, and, and there are some people that still think that's a bit of a problem. Uh, it doesn't happen that often around the Hamilton area where somebody who's at provincial or federal office decides to step into municipal politics, but not, not virtually without, without, without the realm of possibility. I mean, the, the candidate that you beat uh, when you uh, ascended to the mayor's position here in Hamilton was Dave Christofferson, who, of course, resigned his seat as an MPP to take a shot at the top job here in Hamilton. Right, and there have been others as well. Brad Clark yep. comes to mind, uh, uh, who, after he left Munis- or, uh, provincial politics, ran uh, successfully for city council. Um, uh, John Smith, if you recall, um, some years ago as well. And, of course, in other jurisdictions, um, the mayor of Ottawa. Yeah, Jim Watson, sure. Jim Watson and and so there are examples uh, of that, and so it's not with... I, I guess technically you could say John Tory, too, since he was the Ontario PC leader. Absolutely, and, um, you know, maybe the best premier we never had. Uh, and uh, he uh, he now is, uh, I think, a successful Toronto mayor. So, you know, there is precedent for that, and uh, I certainly have heard the uh, rumors about Andrea also, uh, and some of them from uh, her very closest friends. So there is some truth to the speculation, for sure. Well, let's talk about the logistics of this. And, and, of course, you know, the provincial election will occur first. And and I guess that's the wild card in this whole process, if, in fact, there is a move afoot to have this happen. Uh, it depends on how the NDP and specifically Andrew Horvath does. Uh, I think, first of all, let's let's start with a very basic question here. I would think, and although, you know, you're, you're probably crazy to just simply say everything is, there's no certainty in politics at all in any level, I guess, in any election. But you got to think that her chances of re-election within her own riding are, are pretty secure if in the next provincial election. Well, you'd, you'd think so, because after all, she is the leader of her party. She maintains a fairly um, um, high n- number in terms of uh, uh, popularity across the province. And, and, and I would think that that may be uh, uh, holding true, especially in her riding, although she has a uh, a very competitive uh, uh, person running against her now in Deirdre Pite, mm-hmm. who has her own profile, uh, came from the uh, NDP side of, uh, of the political spectrum and, and decided to challenge her uh, in her own backyard um, because of some shortcomings that she saw. So, 
it wouldn't necessarily be true that there's universal approval for Andrea either. But if I were a betting man, I'd say that the odds favor Andrea for sure. But, okay, let's take that to the next level then. Uh, what about the speculation that uh, because of the uh, the angst about uh, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals and because of some of the concerns about Doug Ford, that Andrea Horvath and the NDP might sneak up the middle, not unlike what happened with Bob Ray back in 1990, 91. Yeah, and, and I'm told by a, a, a very reliable uh, NDP source as well, uh, when I asked, uh, about the fact that the NDP seems uh, to not be in the game at this stage uh, of uh, the political process. Um, and, you know, you've probably seen some of the criticisms, uh, where's the NDP, where's Andrea, and so on. But this source, and again, a very well-placed source, uh, someone who would know, tells me that they're going to spend more money in this election cycle than they've ever spent before. And she was pretty excited about the plans that... Um, uh, she didn't divulge to me, but uh, other than to give me that tidbit of information. <laughs> so there is some uh, <clears throat> some movement for sure on the part of the party to, to make sure that they're heard uh, during the election cycle. I, you know, i got to tell you, Larry, I, w- I was doing this uh, at CHML uh, back in those days. And and you may recall the the circumstance around that provincial election. Uh, David Peterson had called the election right. uh, long before he had to. He, you know, was doing relatively well in the polls and was afraid that that could be gone because the economy looked like it was going to tank. So he went way early. And so a lot of people were resentful of that. Uh, They didn't trust the Tories anymore. Bill Davis was gone, and with that was the leadership of the party. Uh, So this election was on. And, of course, the NDP had never held power in the province of Ontario. But i got to tell you, because doing this here in this studio back in those days, it wasn't until about the last two to three weeks of the campaign, and it was a relatively long campaign back then, that people started saying, you know what, I don't like either one of them. I'm going to give the third party a chance. What the heck? What have we got to lose? And it wasn't because of any strong policy necessarily. It was because of the frustration that they felt for the other two. And and i got to tell you, that's not beyond the realm of possibility in this election. I'm not no. suggesting they may turn to the NDP, but there's a lot of angst about the Liberals. There's a lot of angst about a Doug Ford-led progressive conservative party. And I think you're right. I think this uh, cycle presents an opportunity for the NDP and if they're going to run a strong campaign and spend some money getting their message out, uh, anything can happen. And so I would not count them out. I, and I think it's too early. You know, the polls um, show the Liberals trailing badly and Kathleen Wynne's popularity down and the Conservatives up. Well, we've seen that playbook before. Uh, as uh, uh, Brian Mulroney said, you know, the electorate really doesn't focus until the gun goes off. And that's when the writ is dropped. And so those polls are much more meaningful than the ones that uh, are, are running now where they ask for preference in the absence of a campaign and in the absence of the comparative policies that each of the leaders will put forth. And elections uh, do matter for sure. So, so I think the NDP can't be, um, cannot be uh, ruled out of a possible uh, major role, uh, whether in government or in opposition or holding the balance of power. And in my estimation, back to the question of whether Andrea will run, and if, uh, you know, if, uh, if you take her at her word, and I think we should, where, you know, she says never say never, but she's focused on, on her campaign right now provincially. I mean, what else is she supposed to say? <laughs> but in my mind, there are two scenarios where she might run for the mayoralty and two where she won't run for the mayoralty. 
And the scenario where she might run for the mayoralty is if she loses badly at the provincial level and the party will kick her out uh, if she doesn't leave herself before the party does that. Uh, and also, um, if there is a Tory majority, or liberal majority, but, but uh, Tory majority given the polls right now, um, then Andrea will have to ask herself, do I want to stay for another four or five years uh, at the provincial level, essentially uh, regurgitating the same uh, process that she's been doing now uh, for the last decade or so? And Larry, let's talk about that, that scenario before we move on to, to, yeah. the, to the other side of that coin. Uh, for, for, I'm, I know we've talked about this at great length on this program, but uh, <laughs> politics is a blood sport. And and, uh, and as much as Andrea may always pull well across the province as, as a likable individual and a likable leader, uh, if you lose three elections, and I lose, I mean, you don't gain power, not just win seats. That's that's kind of like the, 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 you know, that's the silver medal if you if you increase your seat. But the whole purpose of the politics and the game and the election is to, is to win power. If you don't do that after three elections, you got people within the party that are saying, "I'm not sure we got the right person here," and and that's a reality, no matter who it is. Yeah, and that, and you know what, and it should be that way, perhaps, because at the end of the day, it is about forming government and gaining power. And uh, even if you're a good person as Andrea is, and a smart person as Andrea is, and really a, a, a moderate person, she's not an extreme uh, person in her views. Uh, in fact, part of the reason that she lost some seats last time was that she tried to gain the middle ground. Um, uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, uh, do I want to go through this again? And the party will look for, for fresh blood, fresh leadership to lead them to another campaign. So I think if she loses, she she will herself step down. Uh, but if she doesn't, I think the party will ensure that that happens. Um, on the other side of the coin, um, of course, uh, she will not run or seek uh, uh, an alternative to what she's doing now if she out and out wins, if she becomes premier, obviously. Sure. Uh, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but also, if, if there's a minority government where she holds the balance of power, uh, that might be tantalizing enough to keep her in the provincial game. If she is, um, you know, uh, in second place, as some of the polls are showing the NDB to be in, or indeed in third, but holds the balance of power, that might keep her in the uh, in the uh, provincial arena rather than seeking other pastures. But do, in that scenario, and I know we're really getting down the road of the what ifs here. Yeah. But could you see her as as a, a party leader holding the balance of power, working with Doug Ford on his agenda? Well, you know, no, I can't see anybody really. Unless, if, uh, if in fact he were the premier. If in, indeed he were the premier, uh, unless they, they, unless he changes, uh, and I'm talking about Ford now, uh, his tune and uh, and is forced to, to to deal with the reality of minority government, and you can't bluster and you can't browbeat. Um, you know, it's not like the American system where the president has power in spite of uh, what the other uh, areas of government uh, do. In our legislature, it really is about holding the confidence of the legislature. And uh, so Ford would be forced to concede. And if Andrea thinks that uh, the NDP thinks that they can gain some of their programs uh, by maintaining this balance of power, I can see her doing that. Will Ford accede, or will he force, uh, will the government force election? I mean, we're in really into the realm of speculation at this point. We need to see exactly what happens. But on the pure question of would a balance of power scenario 
maintain uh, Andrea in her place at Queen's Park? Um, my guess is yes. Here, all right, we've only got about a minute and a half left here, and I really wanted to talk about the potential municipally here. With, uh, with, right. uh, this is only part one of this conversation, I'm sure. Right. Uh, and he, this is a statistic that I love to trot out all the time because uh, it's, I think it is relevant. Uh, Hamilton has not re-elected an incumbent mayor since 1997, and that was the late Bob Morrow. Uh, well, the tell last me, time... Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean to open a wound. I was just stating a fact. Uh, but with that in mind, now Fred, of course, Mayor Fred has held the job twice, but there was that defeat in between when Bob Bertino was the mayor uh, for a period of time. Fred is the incumbent. Uh, Eisenberger is the incumbent. Says he's going to run again. Uh, does Does Andrea look at that statistic to embolden her? I mean, it's awfully tough to knock off an incumbent in municipal politics. It, it is, but here's here's the more fundamental question that An- Andrea would have to ask herself. So. Assuming that that the scenario that we talked about earlier would see would see her seeking uh, you know municipal pastures in her own hometown, the question she has to answer is on what grounds will I oppose Fred? Um, I mean, I need to have some policies that uh, give the city the citizens of Hamilton uh, some comparative policy positions that differentiate me from the incumbent mayor. And, and uh, by the way, j- to go back to your election, I mean, with the, it was you and Dave Christofferson. Uh, the wedge issue then was the expressway, because it had yet to be constructed, and obviously you were pro-expressway, David was anti-expressway. I, d- I don't know that there's a wedge issue this time. I mean, they they well, can talk about poverty and everything, but... Uh, well, but even, even there, so I think the two major issues that, that certainly will dominate some discussion uh, are the, uh, the uh, LRT, is the LRT project, where Andrea and Fred are, are in sync, they're on the very same page about the need for that project. Uh, and even in, in terms of poverty, uh, which relates to the economy and, and so on, uh, Hamilton's economy is doing well. Uh, there, there's a, 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 a mood of, of, of optimism about the city. There's lots of development happening. Uh, and yes, uh, you know, we, we had the, you know, the, the silly people on Lock Street uh, trying to fight gentrification and trying to fight Hamilton becoming better, but I think most Hamiltonians welcome the fact that Hamilton is uh, is is, is uh, getting better. But we need to deal with the deep poverty that we have in some parts of our city. But there, I think Fred has an advantage. You, you know, it might be counterintuitive to suggest that Andrea has the advantage, but Fred's actually done something about it. Andrea has talked about it. Andrea has not been in a position to influence policies because she's not been in government. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how this rolls out. And uh, obviously, I don't think anybody's going to say much of anything until after June the 7th. But uh, just another wrinkle in this plan. Larry, let's uh, stay in touch and see how this unfolds. Thanks so much for the time today. It'll be interesting. Thank you. You got betcha. Hamilton, former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau joined us. Uh, he's in town. He was in town yesterday anyway. And uh, among a, a number of other media things he was doing, obviously, the intention of the visit was to visit uh, with folks in the steel industry, uh, both at Stelco and ArcelorMittal DeFasco. Uh, he toured uh, the Hamilton plant, of course, uh, both plants, in fact, and talked with uh, a number of the management types. But he also had a sit-down with uh, union leaders and uh, some of the other folks on the floor and uh, and fielded some questions. And, and I'm sure that we can get a variety of opinions as to how effective that was. One of the folks around that table was Bill Ferguson, uh, president of United Steelworkers Local 8782, of course, at the Nanticoke Works, uh, who has been on this show many times, of course, and Bill has been very articulate in expressing a lot of the concerns 
that steelworkers uh, have in general about the steel industry here in Canada, and more specifically about the uh, the steel industry here in this area, which uh, to say it has gone through some uh, monumental challenges over the last couple of years would be a massive understatement. So uh, having sat there and listened to what the Prime Minister and other people around the table had to say, I wanted to get Bill on to talk a bit, uh, about what happened and, uh, and well, the feeling they had going away. So uh, pleased to welcome Bill Ferguson back to the program. How are you doing this morning, Bill? I'm doing great, old friend. I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Uh, talk to us about what you got through yesterday, what you saw, what you heard, and, and your impressions. Uh, you, I, I mean, I guess a lot of us on social media have seen the picture of the boardroom table uh, with the Prime Minister and some of the representatives from Stelco and uh, Keenan Loomis from the Chamber of Commerce was there and other folks, other business leaders. Uh, what did you hear? What were your impressions, Bill? Well, actually, <clears throat> first of all, he was really well read on the file. I, he was very articulate about what the condition of the steel industry was right now, how it related to the American steel industry, uh, the integrated nature of the industry, and uh, his uh, talks in NAFTA over the issue of steel, uh, over issues of industry. And uh, quite frankly, he was really well read on the file. I hit all the points that we were going to ask questions about, asked us for our opinions. Uh, and there's a few things that I think I've talked about on this show before. I, that is the open-door policy that we have sometimes with foreign steel producers who are dumping. I, one of the big issues was, of course, you get, uh, especially when prices go up, you'll get foreign firms dumping steel in your market, and there is no, uh, there's no gatekeeper. I, Customs Canada is overwhelmed. We've asked them before to try and deal with some of these uh, just outright dumping issues. Sometimes it takes three years. I mean, by the time they get around to dealing with it, the damage is done. Mm-hmm. So we need a rapid response uh, when it comes to trade in this country and being able to keep out foreign steel that is just ruining our industry and uh, made the point that nothing wrong with free trade, that the Canadian industry can deal with anybody uh, on a level playing field, but it's not free-for-all trade. We need fair trade. And it's just not an excuse for people to open the borders and start dumping. So enforcement was one issue. Uh, the other issue that we brought up was this 25% tariff when it was announced and understanding that Trump is going to throw that out there, that everybody's going to be subject to it. Now tell me why I shouldn't do it. Uh, that had an impact on a lot of places in Hamilton that shipped to the United States. There was an erosion of consumer confidence. People started to maybe not get their contracts from there. Other places that are in talks right now for collective agreements, it impacted that. Sales agreements, all this chaos came from the 25%. So that was a reality that we had to deal with. And it wasn't just uh, Trump going on. Sometimes when that man speaks, there's a real negative impact. No kidding. And so I, that was all expressed to the PM. He understood, and actually, as he walked away from the meeting, uh, talked about ways and means of correcting these problems. Now, as far as him going into the plant and going in and talking with people in the plant, uh, the one overwhelming thing, and he got hard questions. He got some hard questions from some of the guys on the shop floor. What are you doing about protecting our pensions? What are you doing about this bankruptcy fraud? Uh, he got hit with those questions. Uh, his answers weren't definite and clear as to, I'm going to make sure that your pensions are protected. I'm going to make sure that bankruptcy fraud is eliminated. He's not going to say that because he can't say that. 
what he did say was that what we have to do is through the course of foreign companies buying in, they have to be scrutinized, and we have to react when those companies start breaking their agreements, uh, and we have to find a way to make these pension plans work. And he gave that answer. Now, is it a definitive answer? No. But the thing that made the impact was the Prime Minister of Canada was standing in the lunchroom. And I think that was recognized by everybody. And after the meeting, you know, I moved around and talked to some of the guys. What did you think? We didn't. And Gary, I know I spoke with Gary Howe. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of the questions that the guys asked for on the floor were staged. Nobody gave them the questions to ask. These are questions that came from rank and filers. I think the point in the meeting was he wasn't afraid to take them, and he tried his best to explain them, and that he actually showed up in the lunchroom. That was a first. No one has ever seen a prime minister walk into Stoko. We've gone through how many bankruptcies? We've gone through all of this nonsense with U.S. Steel. We've been fighting these battles for 20 years. And the Prime Minister of Canada walked in the steel mill. Now, politically, people, we have political plurality in the mill. I mean, I've got guys who are conservatives, some NDP, some liberal. That is the first time that I can think of in history that a Prime Minister ever walked through those gates during turbulent times. You know, Bill, I heard that from a fellow who was not there yesterday, but a retiree who said the same thing. And, and you know, he says, you know, he, everybody thinks we're union guys, so we're all NDP. He says, no, he says there's people of all, every political stripe in the plant. But he says, he says, I don't care who you support politically. He says, that's the prime minister of our country. And he took the time to get down there. He says, that's a big deal. Absolutely. That was how it was read. And it was read by everybody. And, of course, after the meeting, uh, you, know, you move around. Uh, you want to be able to measure the temperature of the guys on the shop floor. In general, in having conversations, and this just side conversations with guys, how are you feeling? We do it every time we hit the floor. I think every union operative does. He goes in, he finds out how his people are feeling. Generally, very positive. Extreme. I don't think I heard one word uh, negative that the Prime Minister of Canada actually walked into a troubled area, a troubled industry that's facing pressure right now and spoke to the troops. There's a lot to be said for that. I had uh, a conversation with him yesterday morning as well, Bill, before I met with you guys. And, and I got to tell you, because I, I, uh, I asked him about, about what was going on and obviously the tariffs, because that's one of the things that gets front of center for most of us. And he talked about the, 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 the dumping that was going on. And, and I'm going to juxtapose that with what we saw last week from Trump, you know, when he announced the possibility of the tariffs. Uh, and he started talking about dumping. And it, it was pretty clear to me that he had no idea what he was talking about. Trump just doesn't get it. Uh, he was targeting Canada and other countries when China is the is the the bad guy here. Uh, as a matter of fact, we already know that uh, that you know China is way down the list when it comes to the importance, but they're number one on the list when it comes to dumping uh, with North American steel and doing it illegally. Uh, and the prime minister seemed to get that. And not only did he know that that was the problem, but he's already talking to us about possible solutions and what he's going to do about that. And he's not going through Trump. He's going through the Commerce Secretary down in the States to try to find a common way to fight, it, to fight this off. So the guy, he's there. And, and, and that, that's got to be reassuring to your, your rank-and-file guys to know that he gets it and he's trying to do something about it. Absolutely. We there, Bill? I think we just lost Bill. Yeah. Well, we'll reconnect with him and just get Are you there? Yep. Yeah, you just dropped out for a second. Go ahead, Bill. 
Well, I, I spoke to the Prime Minister afterwards when we sat down at the table, and I said to him, buddy, you didn't do bad for your first union meeting. <laughs> <laughs> he stood there, and he listened to the guys, all of their complaints, and answered it as best as he possibly could. The point was he was standing in the lunchroom of a steel mill taking questions from rank and filers. Never seen that before in my life. So it's uh, now I don't know how it went in in, uh, in Quebec. I don't know how it's going to go. He's out in Saskatchewan talking to some of the folks there. But it's it's important to know, I guess, uh, that, that this is a big issue. And, and, you know, Bill, when you and I were talking about what was going on with the CCAA and some of the other, you know, the, the sideshows that were happening in some of the courtroom sessions there, I, I know that you and the guys and, and the folks in the plants and even the retirees oftentimes felt like, you know what, nobody's paying attention. They just don't give a damn up in Ottawa. Uh, and, and, and and I can understand that because you weren't getting much response from the previous government and initially from this government as well. How do they feel about this now? Do you get the sense that the, the government's, well, to use the prime minister's phrase that he used with me, and I'm sure he used with you guys, that we got your back here? That's how it came off. Uh, and again, generally, uh, the feedback I'm getting is, wow, well, about time, but yeah. you know, no one's complaining about it. They're here. They're doing what we're asking them to do. And, and and I shared this with you before on previous shows. Is, uh, we used to have boatloads of steel coming in from China, dumping in the port of Vancouver for about half of what the production cost was. We knew the Chinese were just doing it to get hard currency, and they were killing us. And the response we got from the government at the time was, well, that's business. Well, no, it's not. It's piracy. <laughs> and nobody seemed to care. After years and years of, of political neglect, all of a sudden, there is a ray of hope. There's the prime minister is standing there. Guys, we're with you. We got your back. We're going to do something about it. So, and again, political plurality. I'm not going to pretend to force any political stripe on anybody. What was the reaction? How did people react to it? Extremely positive. I want to talk about the pension issue. And and I know that that came up on the shop floor and some of the questions that were tossed at the prime minister and and you've already mentioned that he he's, he addressed it, and it might not have been the answer that workers wanted to hear, but uh, but he's got to do a legal tiptoe here because I know that uh, I know even Scott Duval, of course, who's up in Ottawa now, the Hamilton Mountain MP, uh, has a private members bill that uh, that suggests that pensioners uh, be uh, secured creditors during bankruptcy proceedings, and and I've talked to some legal folks, Bill, and and, and of course I'm not a lawyer, but they say you can't do that, that that's not that recourse. There has to be a different piece of legislation to do that. Uh, and and what I guess we wanted to hear yesterday was that yeah we wanted to have that conversation we need to do something about it uh, I don't know if specifically if that's the way to do it or if there's going to be a separate piece of legislation but there has to be something about securing pensions I mean they've talked about doing that in the broader scale with pension reform here in the country but did you get any sense at all that they want to specifically look at what's happening with steelworkers pensions and because uh, you guys are in the same boat as the auto workers were about four or five years ago and so many others, where you see these things get knocked to pieces, and then the government simply saying, well, sorry, you guys, you're on your own. What My interpretation of what I saw, <coughs> and I mean, Scotty opens up, and Scotty says, this is what we need to see happen. It's the opening salvo of a negotiation. It's something that's in the front of everybody. Uh, something that we have to deal with, and we got to work our way through it. And like any opening salvo, that's going to be the importance. How do we protect the people of Hamilton? How do we protect the people of Haldeman Norfolk? How do we protect Canadians in general? Uh, one of the conversations I had with the PM was, 
some of these pensioners come from the old days when health and safety wasn't a really big deal. A lot of them took the pension and the medical benefits in lieu of the fact that they worked in an extremely unhealthy environment and were letting them down. They always had that cushion. If this happened to me down the road, if I was disabled, I would have my pension and I would have my benefits. Now, I got a good response. Yes, we understand that that is the premise. That is what we have to do. That is how we have to defend people. How we do it? Uh, I'm happy at this point that the conversation is going to be on the floor, that we're going to be able to move forward with that conversation, that we're going to be able to explore ways and means of doing it, and perhaps find a way that we do ensure it. Maybe it isn't the way that uh, is outlined in a bill. Maybe it's different, but it's Scotty opened the cell. Scotty knows how important this is for us. He was one of us. Uh, Scotty sat at the negotiating table with me back in the first CCAA. Scotty knows the impact of it and how bad it can hurt people. Uh, And to know that we're opening it up, it's going to be a conversation. It's something that's being acknowledged and not ignored. Uh, Now, that's the way it is sitting in my office today at uh, close to 10 o'clock. I mean, that could change by 4 o'clock. I'm happy that we're getting traction. But, Bill, Bill, you, you got that message across, and that was one of the frustrations I know you felt uh, when first CCAA first came out and the Invest in Canada Act was, was, was you know, lorded over you guys like a, a sledgehammer, because uh, the government of the day, and, and, and maybe even this one to a certain point, just didn't get it. And they didn't understand that, you know, when some of these people that are retirees now, you, and you've articulated it, I think, so well, uh, they said, you know what, this job sucks, it's terrible, I, I, you know, I don't like it, I don't like the environment, I don't like the work environment, it's not safe, but I'm going to put my head down and keep plugging away because I know that at the end of the day when I retire I'm going to have something there and that was yeah. taken away from them it's different yeah. it's different now because there are different regulations in place and not that pensions aren't important now they still are but they were even more important back in those days because because that was the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that said look at suck it up and get through this and at least you got that at the end yes and I think that there's a reality a reality that's uh, politicians of every stripe have come to realize and it's what I like to call the Trumpian reality. Uh, he got voted into office by a lot of people who felt neglected by the government. That a lot of people in the steel belt, people who worked in coal mines, people who worked in menial blue-collar jobs, that no one has really been paying attention to. And I think that what happened in the States has kind of brought it home to the politicians that you have to listen to the constituent. You can't just brush them off. They have something to say. They have issues, and these issues need to be heard. Now, I'm not a great Trump supporter. I don't think a lot of people are great Trump Well, that's gratifying to hear. Supporter. But you have to admit, they're starting to understand that there is power in the vote, and there is power when people look at it and say, this is wrong, it has to be changed, and we have to deal with it. So we're going to be coming into an era where we're going to have a little more political clout as common working people. And we should be using that clout. We should be getting people out to vote. We should be entertaining politicians like we did with the prime minister. We should be having these conversations and understanding what they're saying because we're entering into an era now where positive change is possible. And we have to embrace that. You've got uh, 
the prime minister's visit was great, and I'm glad that, that, that there seemed to be a positive vibe about that. And 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 it was great that they, you know that any prime minister, including this one, took the time to do this. But do you feel now, the day after Bill, that you have a pipeline to Ottawa? I mean, you you always have. I mean, theoretically, as you mentioned, Scott Duval's up there, former steel worker. Uh, Bob Bertina, of course, East End guy who knows all about worked in the steel industry when he was just a kid. Uh, so that's been there, but you know they've got to go knocking on doors up in Ottawa to get that done. Do you feel as if a few of those doors have been opened now because the prime minister's had eyes on the situation? It does feel like that, and I mean, I, we sat in there yesterday, and I mean, we talked to some of the politicians that were there, uh, and yeah, hopefully we have some traction. I and uh, the prime minister, like I say, was very well read on the file. He understood what he was talking about. I, I guess he gave you the same impression. Yeah. He, when they come into the room and they sit down and they don't know what they're talking about, you walk away from a meeting thinking, well, that was two hours of my life I'll never get back. Uh, but when you sit with somebody who was as well-read on the file as the Prime Minister was, you do have that hope that, hey, maybe this is changing. Maybe we're getting somewhere. Uh, you know, and together, maybe we can push to make some really positive change. I mean, the Health and Safety Act didn't arrive overnight. There was a lot of pain involved getting to that, but mm-hmm. now people look at that and say, I don't know how we operate a business without it. Uh, we have to do the same thing when it comes to taking care of our pensioners, taking care of the elderly, uh, taking care of the workers who work in these plants, and making sure that they do have a secure life after spending 30 years working on the side of a volcano, essentially. Well, I'm just going to say, here's hoping this is a new chapter, uh, and, and maybe a very positive chapter what's going on. Uh, sounds like things went relatively well, but obviously the uh, you know the, the, the devil's going to be in the details. We'll see how it is going forward. Uh, Bill, thanks as always for the time. We'll stay in touch. Always my pleasure. Take care, Bill. You betcha. Bill Ferguson, who of course is the president of United Steelworkers 8782. He was on site for the, the meetings and saw how the prime minister was handling things yesterday. So maybe, maybe. Things are going to start turning around. At least uh, they're listening up in Ottawa, and uh, the Prime Minister seems to get it. And that's a, a very positive step for everybody, retirees and the steelworkers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to talk about a project that uh, we've talked about uh, at great length on this program in uh, the downtown Hamilton area. And it's uh, the property of the old James Street Baptist Church, uh, which is the corner of Jackson and James Street, right across the road from the YMCA downtown. You know the place, the old church that was there. It was dilapidated. Uh, the people that owned the church, uh, that church community, uh, decided to sell it. A developer moved in, was going to build a condo project, and they were going to try to maintain the facade. We talked with the LACAC, or the uh, heritage people, it's not LACAC anymore, but preservation of old buildings, and they tried to follow some middle ground. And yeah, this went on and on and on. Then finally, they said, okay, we got a solution. And it got some support, and they started selling units, and they apparently the sales went very well. There was only one tiny thing that seemed to be problematic here. The uh, developer ran out of money, I guess, because they killed the project uh, for the longest time, and, and it sat there, and we wondered what's going to happen with that piece of property. Well, it looks as if there could be a happy ending to this whole thing. Jason Farr is the counselor for that area for downtown in Ward 2, and, of course, he's been following this file very closely. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update. Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Bill, and I hope to offer uh, as much clarity as Finkelstein will offer before the hour's out. We hope so. We hope so. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. I tried to give a brief history on this. Uh, This has been a a problematic area. I I, I remember when that church was open, how fabulous it was. It became dilapidated. Uh, Along came a developer, which is not unusual, an infill project, and uh, you were sounding pretty positive at that time that maybe something was going to happen here. 
Yeah, another one of those uh, heritage redevelopments that uh, turned into a real roller coaster ride, to be sure. This one is uh, unique, as uh, I thought you offered a pretty good synopsis to uh, introduce this piece, actually, Bill. It uh, opened with uh, what was at the time a staff delegated authority to uh, recommend to the Heritage Committee, formerly LACAC, uh, that a, a partial demolition, as was the terminology at the time, some uh, heritage uh, activists. Uh, today would call it a demolition, and uh, fair enough, it's a good substantial piece of the church that went down in order to accommodate what the Heritage Committee, ultimately the Planning Committee and Council approved, which was an adaptive reuse, uh, that saw an, a, a planning approval for the tower that you mentioned, 30 stories of uh, residential, uh, ground floor uh, commercial, and of course the um, all-important preservation of that facade. So, you know, through a series of uh, issues, I guess, uh, it ultimately landed uh, the project with the uh, developer who initially made the pitch and ultimately received the approvals uh, into a receivership with Sturgill. And so uh, in the last 24 hours, we've heard some uh, reports that uh, Sturgill has now reached out, as they said they would, to those folks who had bought units initially uh, and invested in that uh, early proposal and uh, basically telling them that uh, we're at a point now where we want to move forward on the development. We need to make you whole. Uh, up until uh, about uh, the point of receivership, and now uh, a law firm was, uh, as decided by the courts, which my, was my understanding, Bill, uh, was uh, holding on in trust those uh, deposits. So now it looks like there's a way forward for those folks to get their deposits back. And from what I understand, Bill, even an opportunity, if they still wish to invest, when the new owner, and there's a new owner out there uh, now, which we've also learned in the last uh, week or so, uh, if they want to move forward and, and uh, be part of that new development, they would start from scratch. And my understanding is they would get uh, the same price points they received back in 2015. All right, let's let's talk about that because the project, as it was about to move forward, and this is under the previous uh, ownership group that uh, that fell apart, uh, was not without its controversy. And even the oh, final wow. solution was a compromise. And, and you know, the definition of compromise means nobody's happy. I'm, I'm not going to say it was necessarily that stark. But there's still a lot of people that were bothered by that. Some wanted the church preserved in its entirety. Others thought that the uh, using the facade and then building a high-rise above or below it or anywhere else around there uh, was somewhat problematic. Uh, were, you, were you happy with the design as it was then, or just say, well, that's better than nothing? Uh, I, I may have used the word compromise, as I did with the Gore project yeah. over the years of that roller coaster ride that we've talked about, and that's a good the definition of compromise because, yeah, it's hard to see uh, everyone singing kumbaya when obviously there's an altered state and in this way a pretty significantly altered state of uh, you know 150 plus years of history uh, right in the heart of our city uh, that said you know i'll remember way back seven and a half years now one of my first meetings with uh, 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 places of worship and faith was actually at James Street Baptist, when the uh, uh, parishioners uh, wanted to get together with me, the folks that were assisting there, it was a declining, it's a story that we're hearing on a lot of fronts as it relates to some of our places of worship, not only downtown, not only across the city, but across Canada, and they were looking uh, for a purchaser, and as you mentioned off the top, and we were sitting in the, in the front uh, section of the church in the office, and we were with uh, the the you know, the, the the managing group of the church and mm -hmm. the priest and everyone else, and they said, well, just as I sat down, while you're sitting here, whenever a bus goes by, you're going to hear the mortar fall between the three-foot gaps between the outside wall 
and the inside wall. And sure enough, every time a bus went by, this haunting sound that I still remember to this day, this echo of mortar falling or whatever uh, materials were in between in this three-foot gap when they built the church 150 years ago, obviously different, you know, I don't even know if there were building codes back then. Uh, and, and they, they, you know, they had me believing on, I guess, a superficial level at the time that there were some structural issues. Fast forward to when they tried to sell it. They had more the engineering reports done and even further engineering reports, which led to, by the way, our, our delegated authority at the time for planning staff to suggest to the Heritage Committee that this is one way to counter, to fully restore one piece of the church, a third of the church, the facade of the church, and, and bring in a new uh, development at 30 stories uh, to offset some of those costs of uh, preserving the front piece because engineering reports did show that it was in a, in a deteriorating state. But back to your um, you know, definition of compromise, there were still some and are still some in the community that believed that, that it could still be fully preserved. And, that, and fair enough, I mean, anything can be preserved. It's at what cost and, and what's the appetite for an adaptive reuse. Well, and therein lies the problem. And and if I recall, I don't know that anybody was stepping forward saying, uh, I'll buy it and I'll leave it the way it is and just restore it. No, and I talked to one individual, not to be named now, but certainly someone who has been uh, uh, very good at restoration, full restorations, and a few adaptive reuses, a few add-ons to some of our beautiful uh, heritage in the downtown core, who uh, came close, wanted to turn it into a musical, but the price point and the performer did not work for that particular individual. Uh, that particular individual took a pass, and that's what led to this uh, open market and this ultimate uh, planning decision and ultimate council decision to move forward on, on this adaptive reuse. And, you know, that's always the, the decision and, and maybe one of the tougher decisions to make when it comes to heritage properties. I, I, I think most of us are on the side of the angels here and said, sure, if we can preserve these old buildings, we should uh, because they're part of our history and, and they're, they're fabulous and they, they have a great, uh, obviously, curb appeal. But as I talked to some of the members of the Heritage Committee, uh, when that decision was being made, Jay, and I'm not, I know you had many conversations with them, they said, look, it, it, preserving for the sake of preserving is not always the best idea. And maybe the best example of that is, is uh, as you look at your office at City Hall right now, is St. Mark's Church over the corner of Bay and Hunter Street, which uh, council way back in the 1990s said, we got to save that building, we're going to buy it. Well, it sits there empty for the longest time because nobody wanted to use it for anything. And it was well, costing the money, you know, it was costing the city money hand over fist. And it was all well and good that they preserved it, but there has to be a use for it at the same time. Yeah, and preservation can come at a great cost. You, you absolutely hit the nail on the head, Bill. First case scenario for almost all of us, I am sure, is to save heritage in its fullest form uh, in each and every case. But each case is different. And in this case, and as we've just noted, there were huge structural challenges and engineering challenges that the, the Jane Street Baptist folks let me in on seven and a half years ago. Uh, and, and, you know, the Heritage Committee was very well apprised and made very well aware of what these challenges w were, and that's what led to this redevelopment proposal. And ultimate uh, un uh, uh, unanimous support by council to do an adaptive reuse, to maintain the facade, preserve that facade at a cost, uh, and then bring in a new structure in behind. A lot of people were excited about the prospect of this redevelopment. Unfortunately, more turns in the road, and, and unfortunately, ultimately, a dead end for the person who initially made the pitch and made the purchase, uh, however, did receive those approvals. So in this case, 
it's it's different from many other cases. And as much as Hamilton offers, as you know, and you've talked about it in the past, some of the broadest, uh, most in-depth heritage uh, grants and loans, as far as grants and loans programs for preserving heritage are, in Ontario, if not Canada, we have great packages and, and, and we offer great programs in an effort to save as much heritage as we possibly can. Sometimes we end up with these compromises, which is, if you got me thinking about that definition, because it's a good, good, good definition for compromise, Bill. And, and, and so we're at where we're at right now. And the one thing I'll say is, and I appreciate you mentioning it off the top, there is a buyer. There is already an approved plan. So, you know, you, it's hard to put a price on a 30-story approval with a parking ratio at 0.5, by the way, which is a, which set a precedent in the downtown. We've never gone that low. That's half a parking spot per unit. And, and if, if you take a look at the former sales folks, and they're well-qualified, St. Jean's Realty, they were at 75% sold. It wasn't just Louis Santiago, the fellow that went into receivership, uh, ultimately that said they were at 75% sold. Sometimes we hear that and we question whether or not that's true because that's the threshold to get the financing from the bank. But it was also the realtor who shared with us that they, they had a very much a great deal of success. I know you had Larry DeAnne on the program talking about it too, who made investments on units in that building as well and his family. Uh, so I, you know, I believe that to be true, and uh, and so that shows there's an interest. And now with all the planning approvals in place, that brings great value to this development. I still, as you can tell, am very optimistic something's going to occur there at Jackson and James. Have you had discussions with the new owners? I have not. I reached out to the uh, receiver uh, group when they initially took receivership. I made it very clear that as part of these planning approvals that I'm positively talking about. A must was that this one-third that remained standing uh, as and that was part of the uh, redevelopment approval by council must remain in the plans of whomever comes forward. So they shared that with all those interested parties. It's come down to one party now who's made the purchase, and they are well aware that as part of the planning approval, notwithstanding that there was other pieces like what you're eligible for in terms of uh, heights and densities and those sorts of things, the ground floor commercial needs, the 0.5 parking ratio, that preservation of the one-third that's still standing was an absolute must. And so that purchaser is well aware. That I know. All right. but So so you have not had a, a one-to-one conversation with these folks yet, but, I mean, it, is it your impression from what you do know that they're going to carry on with the project as it was already uh, designed and, and, and certainly certified by city council and by the Heritage Committee? Or are they going to come back and say, no, no, we got a different plan for this altogether now? That's the sense I get. And any different plan they have, they would need to come back. So it's a really good point. And, I and, and if they do that, they have to go back to square one, don't they? They would have to go through the whole procedure all over again because now you're talking about zoning amendments, Bill, because this was a zoning change. Uh, and if you're going to change what council's already approved, it's the whole public process once again. And, and I'm sure they're well aware of that. And again, I, I mean, can't emphasize enough, the preservation of the one-third facade is the big piece in all of this. And the purchaser, any purchaser that, uh, you know, kicked the tires on this even three, four months ago when the receivership happened would be well apprised, well aware of this. So whatever performer they may have, that would be included in their performance. So I'm feeling confident about that. But to your question, absolutely, after reading the article last night online from CBC, talking to Natalie Padden from the Hamilton Spectator last night and reading the Spectator article, I've, I've, I've made uh, overtures and I looked uh, as soon as possible to speak to uh, the, the soon-to-be and hopefully positive proponent 
and finally getting this project going and making certain that they're well aware of uh, what council is approved here. I, I know that the real estate market's been crazy for the last couple of years uh, when it comes to residential properties, and that's certainly cooled off now, and, and much to the chagrin, I guess, of people who wanted to sell. But I'm getting the sense that the condo market uh, in the downtown area is still very lively. Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, uh, approximate numbers, but I had asked recently, and this is uh, first I've shared with uh, the media, uh, for the numbers of condo projects we've had in the last few years, uh, both in the last few years and what projections we have, and approximately 2,000 a year, 2000, 1,900 or so, I think it was, Bill, that came online a couple of years ago, uh, about the same, 19 to 2,000 in progress, and 2,000 for future. That's close to 6,000 condominium units, and that's in our downtown core. So clearly there's still a market for it. If there's one, We've learned a number of things from the proponent that did go into receivership. And one was the transit walkability scores are through the roof on this particular project. And our market is still considerably less per square footage for condo ownership than it is for Toronto. And as you and I talked, I think, the last time we were on together about three, four weeks ago, there's still very much interest uh, from the Toronto market. A lot of what we're seeing in the downtown core and real estate investments in Hamilton in general, not just in Ward 2, are, are coming from Toronto buyers who see a much better price point uh, and for greater livable conditions. Well, I mean, which is why, obviously, you can make some allowances with the parking space uh, ratio there. I mean, you're literally exactly. steps away from the GO station and about, what, two blocks away from the Hamilton uh, Transit Hub. Now I'm starting to sound like a real estate agent. But, I mean, it's it's a good buy, which is why we're happy to find out that it looks like there could be a happy ending. Jay, thanks, as always, for uh, spending some time and adding some clarity to this. We'll stay in touch. Thanks, Bill. Jason Farr, the counselor for War 2 downtown. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.